At Vertex, we know the pace of global commerce is increasing, which makes managing tax more complex. And your enterprise systems weren't built to handle that tax complexity. This is where we come in with our platform that enables continuous compliance, giving you more transparency, improved accuracy, and better confidence in your tax data. To learn more about continuous compliance, visit vertexinc.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, but obviously, if you can't listen to the radio show live, we're bringing you the best bits here on the podcast. A special hello today to Rachel. She says, congrats on the Red Box podcast. I listen whilst I'm taking my daily iced baths, which helps with my autoimmune condition. 11 minutes, two bags of ice. Oh, makes me feel cold just thinking about it. This is usually at home, but it's also been done on holes in Crete and Switzerland. Keep it up. It takes my mind off the cold. Uh, well, thanks so much for that, Rachel. Um, if you want to get in touch and let me know where you listen to the podcast, you can email me, matt.chorley at times.wahir. And uh, I'll say hello to you on tomorrow's episode. Um, right, to take your mind off the ice bath today, Rachel, as ever, it's Wednesday, so it's PMQ's Unpacked is coming up. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Crampon. It's Robert Crampton and... Alice Thompson. Right, let's let's kick off by talking about government by text message. There's a lot of it about. We've had David Cameron texting Rishi Sunak on behalf of Greensill, uh, which uh, text messages that Rishi Sunak, uh, well, he, he released his own messages uh, back to David Cameron. We think that David Cameron will have to release his messages to the Treasury Select Committee uh, over the next two weeks. And then today, the BBC reporting... Text messages sent from Boris Johnson to the businessman James Dyson. Back in the early days of the pandemic, James Dyson was offering to uh, use his technology to build some ventilators because obviously we needed uh, a lot of ventilators in the early stages uh, and was seeking assurance that employees of Dyson wouldn't face tax changes if they moved to the UK to work on a ventilator. Um, uh, Boris Johnson texting, I will fix it tomorrow. You, uh, We need you. It looks fantastic. Uh, and then uh, when uh, James Dyson sought further assurance, Boris Johnson replied, James, I am first Lord of the Treasury and you can take it that we are backing you to do what you need. Bizarrely, the phrase first Lord of the Treasury is now trending on Twitter. So, uh, Alice, uh, there's part of me that thinks this is entirely normal, uh, government by text message, but that, uh, I mean, it, but maybe that shouldn't be the case. I think it started really with um, Tony Blair had sofa government um, because he was trying to get um, away from his officials too much and just have a direct line, and also so that you can't be traced too much. And Cameron went straight into the text messaging. I'm not sure even Blair knew how to text message when he was prime minister. Well, he didn't have a um, phone. He didn't have a mobile exactly. phone. Exactly. Yeah, he was well, so Cameron yeah. really got it, and he saw that Obama was doing it, Merkel was doing it, all the world leaders seemed to be doing it, and it was quite efficient for him and quite organised. And I think Carrie obviously is Instagram, but I think Boris also gets the benefit of a quick <laughs> text message. Um, and in a way, it's very old-fashioned because everyone, you know, younger people are using Instagram or WhatsApp if you don't want to be traced. 
But um, I think they're going to find it very difficult because we're going to get more and more of these messages. And it's great because, you know, you ha- they have all these weird um, anachronisms and then they spell out in full the First Lord of the Treasury or, you know, Boris <laughs> quite likes a few emojis, I've been told. So he's quite an emoji guy, which you can imagine because he's quite emotive rather than sort of serious about it all. And it must drive the officials completely nuts. But you can see why business guys do it as well because they just want to get to the Prime Minister, don't they? And it's quite a quick way of getting to him. And because Boris is, has been knocking around for a long time, uh, often in positions where he, you know, he was quite familiar with lots of people. Lots of people seem to have his number uh, in a way that, uh, you know, I imagine far few, far more people have Boris Johnson's number than have like Rishi Sudak's number, uh, just because you know he's not been in, in demand for so long. Uh, Robert, do you think this? Um, do you think this matters? Uh, is it just the way of the world? Um, and yeah, it, I mean, maybe Alice mentioned Tony Blair, and I saw he'd commented that he said he, he was finding it hard to get worked up about this, and I'm, I sort of agree with that. Uh, I think it's the way of the world. I mean, I think we'd be naive to think that money and uh, employing lots of people, like well, albeit in Singapore, like James Dyson, doesn't doesn't get you influence, it doesn't get you the Prime Minister's phone number, and doesn't get a pretty rapid response. I think. In defence of Boris Johnson, they were very difficult times. Those ventilators, as it turned yes, out, yes, that's a good need- point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't needed, uh, but at the time, it looked like they were going to save lives. So, cutting through some of the niceties in the protocol was probably necessary. Uh, it's funny what you're saying about the progress. Alistair Campbell used to have, have to have his emails printed out when he was in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just seems like weird, doesn't it? I mean, that's only 20 years ago. And uh, and then Cameron, do you remember Cameron with the LOL thing to uh, to Rebecca Brooks uh, when he thought it meant lots of love and it actually means laughing out loud? So he was, um, Alice, Alice, Alice said you know, he was kind of in with it, down with the kids with the texting, but he didn't, he didn't know that basic... Uh, Abbreviation and obviously there my favourite my favourite story about that was Danny Finkelstein, uh, our, our Times columnist colleague, saying that after I think it was after Danny's mother died, David Cameron sent him a text saying, "I'm really sorry to hear about your mother." LOL, thinking it meant <laughs> <laughs> lots of love. <laughs> um, there obviously, isn't, I mean, there the, obviously uh, isn't a word predictor for. Uh... First Lord of the Treasury, though, is there? Usually, you exactly. Know. Yeah, there's not. Uh, that, they definitely need to short that. I, I mean, my my slight feeling about this story is, I mean, it's a great get by the BBC, and it gives us an insight to the working of the government. However, yeah. um, if a, a series of text messages came out, and actually there was a bit of this uh, last year, if a series of text messages came out where James Dyson had repeatedly texted Boris Johnson saying, "I stand ready to produce ventilators that you need," and he kept yeah. replying saying, "I'm sorry, I can't help you. You'll have to call the hotline like everyone else." Yeah. <laughs> He'd have had a load of grief about that as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. But the thing is, it does make it look quite kind of chummy, doesn't it? The difficulty is the sort of jokey way you're doing it, the kind of I'm first Lord of the Treasury, slightly show-offy, quite alpha, um, is quite annoying. Otherwise, I think he's fine. And I think think Cameron's got a much bigger problem with the texts, you know, as a former prime minister, around to people trying to lobby. Because actually what Boris Johnson isn't trying to get money for himself uh, he's not trying to do it. It's, as no, Robert said, it's just trying, trying to solve to, a problem, isn't it? Yeah, he's just trying to cut. He's saying, oh, I can cut. He's boasting a bit and saying, I can cut through any bureaucracy here. And let, let's get these things built, which I think most people, me included, will say, 
fair dues. Fair enough. I mean, but I suppose yeah, actually, it's there's bit... also the, the the added bit of spice in this story is it was to do with the tax status of people working for Dyson, and yes. I suppose you could say, you know, uh, James Dyson's an incredibly wealthy man. He moved a lot of his operations from the UK. Uh, out uh, you know, to Singapore yes. and elsewhere for tax purposes, he could have said, you know, it, it, it could have fallen to James. Du- you know, he wasn't saying, uh, I'm not able to help with this. It was, I want to, you know, uh, some help on the, the tax status of stuff. So you yes. could argue that actually he was looking for some preference. You know, he was looking to get something yeah. out of a crisis, essentially. Uh, and he yeah, could have just said, well, well, I'll suck this up. I'll suck this up. Uh, this it doesn't cost. look great. And it, and it sort of taints his, it, it taints his generosity slightly to say, Hang on a minute. We're not going to be hit. My people are not going to be hit with a big tax bill here, are they? Which isn't really in Boris's gift, gift Boris Johnson's gift to say yes or no, is it? Yeah, but, and I uh, suppose uh, that's where it's not great yeah. where Boris is saying, "I'm the first lord of the treasury. I can I can uh, strike a pen through someone's tax yeah. bill." Uh, yeah. because that would uh, that would benefit them. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, we've got a few messages here from people saying uh, they don't really care about this either, uh, and anything to help in a pandemic. So let's talk about... In fact, it's all slightly sticky with, with phones, uh, this. Um, and the role that mobile phones are playing in... Uh, uh, the, well, partly the uh, George Floyd case, but other cases we've seen as well. Obviously, yesterday, uh, David Chauvin was found guilty of three uh, charges in the killing of, of George Floyd. Um, and part of the reason why we can see what happened was partly through the body cams, but also other people filming in the street and that sort of thing. It's really interesting. Yesterday, I spoke uh, to uh, Stephen Shames, who was the official photographer of the Black Panther Party back in the 1960s, and uh, he was asked by Bobby Seale, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, um, uh, to take photos of the party to to sort of catalogue what they were doing, so you know the behind the scenes and that sort of thing. Um, and, and what he said, I thought really resonated. Let's take a listen to what Stephen said. Bobby Seale at that time said publicly, you know, if we were organising today, I wouldn't have carried guns openly. The cell phone is the best weapon we have today against uh, police brutality. You don't need to confront them with guns today. We have the cell phones and and the internet. And that's actually, he said that, you know, 10 years or more ago, but that's actually proved to be true. Yeah, so this, I I just thought this was really interesting that actually, um, I think somebody said yesterday is the first time in history that a police officer from Minnesota has been found guilty of killing uh, a, a black man and actually the shocking thing is you don't immediately think oh that's because it's the first time it's ever happened because mm. it's the first time that this has been uh, proven and part of the reason it's been proven is partly because of the body cameras uh, but in so many cases now Alice we see video footage is so important um, in these these situations to, to, to really see what, what has actually happened uh, and people be able to capture that on their phones it's such a powerful tool now I think it is, and we've had so much of what's wrong with cell phones and why we don't want people, you know, that sort of iPhone generation. And in fact, those were one of the huge benefits. And also, I mean, in a way, I quite like it if the police were more monitored, if, you know, and it's like with cyclists when, you know, that they, they take photos. You just, you do need some kind of evidence, and it's so much more powerful, isn't it? And particularly, then you can then, anyone can then download it and it can go viral. Um, so in this case, I think it really showed, and it was such a long one, it was nine minutes. I mean, it was just extraordinary. It was almost impossible not to know what was going on. You couldn't have said, oh, well, it was the wrong angle or this or that. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really horrifying to watch. What do you think, Robert? It was shot by a, shot by a teenager, a 17-year-old called Darnella Frazier, 
the, the main the main uh, footage. Uh, if it had been anybody much older, they probably would have cocked it up somehow and pressed the wrong button. <laughs> Filmed their own face or something. Yeah. So we should be very grateful to young Darnella. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a the immediate scrutiny is always a good thing. I mean, I would say that. You know, it was partly the the uh, stills photographers like Don McCullen who helped end the Vietnam War with uh, with with what they did there. And this is this is just the latest development of of opening things up. Uh, would we would that Guy have gone to trial if if Darnella had not been there, probably not. I think we know what we all have to say. And that's what I thought was extraordinary. Her that she said she felt guilty she hadn't got involved, and that is the only problem. Is if you're filming Mm. something, you can't get involved. But in the end, actually, it's probably a logically a better thing to do to have filmed it than to have tried to intercede in any way, particularly seventeen and a woman. She'd have got herself shot, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a, yeah, that's a ter- the 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 terrible truth of it. And actually, you do sort of mm. so, sometimes see, you know, when a terrible incident happens, uh, people, you know, well, basically when anything happens, people are slightly inclined to get their phones out and film it. And actually, it feels a bit ghoulish or um, yeah, you know, rubbernecky to do it. But actually, in some situations, it's it's proven that um, you know you really need that. In the and you know, obviously, it would just be better if you know the, the, there were so many problems with American policing. Uh, yes. which, you know, British policing is not perfect by any means, but it's clearly not in the state that American policing's in. But, you know, we should just be glad that someone did did grab their phone in that, well, yeah, that situation. We saw, this, we saw the same thing with the Rodney King the Rodney King beating in 92, do you remember, in L.A.? That was that was filmed. We wouldn't have known about that otherwise. Yeah, that and actually, up. if you looked at the original, it was going viral yesterday, but if you looked at the original police report into what happened with George Floyd, it was... You just you a million miles away from clearly what had actually happened yeah. Uh, yeah. in terms of the way the officer reported it. Um, just finally, Alice, I want to talk to you about your column because uh, I thought it was lovely, if slightly depressing, about languishing. <laughs> to <laughs> languish. Optimistic. To lose or lack vitality, weaken, wither, droop, wilt or fade. So, um, Alice, are you, do you feel like you're, you're languishing or are you thriving, flourishing? Well, Actually, it made me feel better in the end because I've talked to various psychologists and it is true that in this third lockdown, as we come to the end, we should be incredibly excited because, you know, the death rates are so far down. You can go to the pub, you can get your hair cut. But actually, in a way, we're all just quite exhausted by the whole process. And it's a bit like when you're running a marathon, you hit the 20th mile, that you've you've used up almost all your reserves. You almost can't quite get to the end. And there's that sense now that, you know, you can see your parents in care homes or your relatives, but you can't take them out for a walk. You can't take them a drive or they've got to self-isolate for another 14 days the students aren't back yet the schools have gone back but they've all got to catch up and and it's not quite as exciting and exhilarating as you thought it would be so everyone's feeling a bit meh and actually it might not be but quite a lot of my friends are just going mm, it's sort of okay but I've kind of got my hair cut now and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing and you can't plan ahead yet because <laughs> everything's on the red list and so it's not like everyone's depressed I don't think at all anymore or I mean some are but you know you you're not most people aren't desperate. It's just that sense of, oh, my God, we're still not out of it. We're still not there. And you've still got other countries doing appallingly. And, and yeah, you just feel a bit mad. How do you feel, um, Robert? Are you, are you languishing or, or flourishing? Yeah, well, neither one. I mean, I, I, just, I, I get what Alice is saying. I, I, I wrote something similar a few, few uh, ten days ago. I, I called it stoicism. I mean, maybe that's the sort of optimistic way of looking at it. But there's nothing very exciting about it. It's just keep it's just slogging on, isn't it? Uh, so what I was describing as stoicism, Alice is saying is languishing, but they probably amount to much, pretty much the same thing. 
Yeah, I think I prefer uh, stoicism, actually. <laughs> I think. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds more heroic, doesn't it, than language? Well, maybe in that, in that moment, I was just being a bit more optimistic than you, but I think we're probably, you know, they said this towards the end of the war, didn't they, that people were much more miserable in 1944 than they were in 1940, just because it's just, oh, you know, this is just going to, when's this going to end? You know, even though it was clearly about to end, it was just, it was worse in a way because everyone had just... Yeah. Had this and people in submarines have the long. same... Yeah, yeah. on the submarines yeah. and when you go to space, they all say exactly the same, that it's about three quarters of the way through the mission. When you're on your way back, nearly seven eighths, you're sort of there. You're not quite sure what's going to happen when you get back. You're not sure if things have moved on, if everything's going to change, mm. stay the same. And so you get that sort of sense, they all say, or coming back from the Antarctic, they say the same thing. You get this sense on a mission that actually that last bit is quite a slog and it should be the moment when you're thinking, great, nearly there, you know, done that, looking forward to what's happening. But you don't quite, you're like, hmm. God, I've still got quite a long way to go. <laughs> and maybe people are well, starting uh, to regret, regret, as it's ending, they're all regretting the things that they didn't do with the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah well, no, my, that, my copy, my it, copy of Plato's Republic remains unread. I can, uh, I can exclusively reveal. Well, I, well, I personally feel like I, I flourished last week with the Great Unlock, and uh, I'm now languishing in self isolation, having been told to uh, self isolate by the uh, NHS app. So, um, I've managed to do both in the space of about ten days. Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this... PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley. And Patrick Maguire. Yes, Tim Shipman's off having a spray tan or whatever he's doing today. So we've got Patrick Maguire with us instead. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right, Matt. How are you? 
I'm very good. I'm very good. What do we expect? I mean, uh, yeah, if, you, if we'd had this conversation yesterday, we'd have thought football is going to dominate. Uh, but what do we expect to come up at PMQs today, given that uh, Boris Johnson, I imagine, is going to go on some sort of victory lap uh, on uh, the Super League? Well, I can foresee one of two things. Uh, Labour are convinced that this is the end of the Tory commitment to reforming football, even though Oliver Dowden has made very uh, aggressive noises that this is merely the start. Um, So I expect he'll either keep up the pressure on this idea of a fan-led review, or alternatively, uh, Labour are very excited about the uh, James Dyson lobbying, in inverted commas, story this morning. So uh, given we've now stopped paying attention to football, or we're about to stop paying attention to football, uh, I imagine Keir Starmer might try and breathe new life back into the lobbying scandal. Yeah, go back to the, this uh, lobbying story. And in fact, this morning, uh, the Labour Party was planning to send... Um, where's the where's the release? Because I, I would hate to get this wrong. They were going to send activists dressed as David Cameron, Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock. Dressed up, How you dress up as Matt Hancock? I don't know. But down to Downing Street, brandishing large envelopes of taxpayers' money, asking why the Prime Minister's government have allowed dodgy contracts to be handed out to allies and friends of Cabinet Ministers. Now, I have to say, this is all a bit reminiscent of when the Labour Party under Gordon Brown got people to dress up as uh, you know people in uh, toffs with top hats, and then David Cameron won... Uh, the crew by-election off the back of it. So um, it's not that it's a risk, but the Labour Party clearly clearly feels like there is some political uh, capital uh, to be won here. Yes, they do. Although one of the people who dressed him in those t- top hats is now a Labour shadow minister, Alex Norris, and you'd hope he uh, might grab Keir Starmer by the lapels and say it didn't work, don't humiliate, whatever <laughs> poor junior official you're going to send uh, to wave uh, handfuls of Monopoly money. But no, Labour, Labour clearly do think that Sleaze... Uh, and even before the revelation about David Cameron about Lex Greensill, cronyism is the only word around this Labour, around which this Labour front bench can unite. So I think we're, we're still going to be hearing a lot more of that because they feel they have a very powerful argument to prosecute on that front. Uh, do you? What's your sense from you know polling and focus groups and that sort of thing that you, you've been uh, looking at? Is this is this cutting through and having an impact on? Uh, voters? Because actually, I mean, the most recent YouGov poll for the Times put, gave the Tories an extraordinary lead. Well, if you speak to the Labour Party and this, you know, file this under the old Mandy Rice Davis, they would say that, wouldn't they? They say the sleaze does cut through on the doorstep. But the problem is, um, and people have made, been making this point all week, post expenses, there is uh, a, and all the polling and focus group bears this out, there is a blanket assumption, regardless of party, that all politicians are at least a little bit corrupted or corruptible. So the problem is for Labour that this might not become a uh, the Tories doing it for themselves, it's a Tory sleeve story. The alternative is, um, actually, this is the bare minimum we'd expect of politicians. So be careful what you wish for. It might manifest itself as a more general, amorphous, anti-politics feeling, in which case it'd be harder for any one party to uh, make hay out of it. Uh, and do you get the the, the sense that um, the government is worried about it? I mean, they... they... I mean, they just, you know, Boris Johnson so far has just tried to bat it away. But are they conscious of this being an issue for them? I, I think they, I think they have belatedly woken up to the idea that this might not just be an invention of the Labour Party and it's a problem that needs uh, resolving. Although we're very much still in the uh, independent review stage. I don't think... <laughs> you, you saw Boris Johnson's one-word answer to Paul Wall, the journalist who asked him about the uh, Nolan principles of integrity in public life. Um, they're very uncomfortable talking about this, but I think we're approaching the point where they feel like they're going to have to level with the electorate to a certain extent. 
Well, let's find out if Boris Johnson is going to level with the electorate uh, right now. Uh, let's go live to the House of Commons. Uh, Keir Starmer's first question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in wishing Her Majesty a very happy birthday? The last few weeks have been a time of incredible personal anguish. Uh, we all send Her Majesty and the Royal Family our very best wishes. Can I also join the Prime Minister in his comments about the verdict in the George Floyd case, uh, justice in that case? And even as an Arsenal season ticket holder, can I uh, join him in his comments about the European Super League, which would have destroyed football, and we now need to get on with the other changes that are necessary. Uh, and finally, Mr Speaker, can I also send my condolences to the family of Frank Judd, um, who died earlier this week. Frank was a much-loved member of this House and the other place for many decades and highly respected as a Labour minister, a great internationalist, and campaigner for peace and human rights, and uh, he will be sadly missed. What does the Prime Minister think is the right thing to do if he receives a text message from a billionaire Conservative supporter asking him to fix tax rules? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, first of all, I echo uh, the Right Honourable Gentleman's remarks about Frank Judd. And uh, can I say to him, uh, in response to his question, uh, that if he's referring to uh, the request from James Dyson, I make absolutely no apology at all, Mr Speaker, for shifting heaven and earth and doing everything I possibly could, I think any uh, Prime Minister would in uh, those circumstances, uh, to secure ventilators uh, for the people of this country and to save lives and to roll out a ventilator procurement uh, which the uh, Labour-controlled uh, Public Accounts Committee themselves uh, said was a benchmark uh, for procurement. OK, let's jump in uh, there. I think, well, so there's, there's a lot of uh, preamble there, uh, just because of uh, uh, quite often if Boris Johnson uh, wants to comment on the news, then uh, Keir Starmer feels that he's got to comment on the, on, on the news as well. On the meat of it all, unsurprisingly, Keir Starmer going uh, for these uh, text messages, the text messages in which um, uh, James Dyson, the owner of the Dyson uh, vacuum uh, company, was offering to supply ventilators at the start of the pandemic to develop uh, ventilators, uh, but wanted some reassurance about the tax status of staff who uh, weren't normally based in the UK um, to basically make sure they weren't paid uh, more tax. And at one point, Boris Johnson said he would sort it and said, I am the Lord, uh, the first Lord of the Treasury, uh, which is his technical uh, title as uh, Prime Minister. But really interestingly, uh, Patrick Maguire, um, Times Web Box editor, who joins us to, to analyse these exchanges. Really interesting, Boris Johnson, completely unapologetic and going for that, uh, the public mood, as is, is you might have um, guessed, that, that actually, you know, if he, if he hadn't been seen to be doing everything he possibly could to, to procure um, ventilators, then he'd probably be even more fiercely criticised. Yes, exactly. As in so, as in so much of political communications... The you've got to consider what the alternative is. It's like when a politician gets up and says, you know, I believe every child should have the best start in life. Imagine a politician getting up and saying the opposite. There is a lot of people think it's not meaningful political communication if you, don't, if you can't imagine someone saying the opposite. It's not a real argument. And if Boris Johnson had, was now saying, uh, Keir, if Boris Johnson said no, as you said, Keir Stone would surely be saying, look, you rejected these offers from uh, altruistic British businesses in this country's hour of need. Um, you weren't. You were, you know, too rigidly following the rules of the Whitehall bureaucracy. So that's particular. And, and, and as you've heard in your focus groups, Matt, the public have been willing to cut the government an incredible amount of slack, and still are. So if you were to say in your next focus group, do you think Boris Johnson was wrong to um, 
give this businessman a tax incentive to manufacture ventilators? I would say most people would say no. And this is part of the problem with when you have a a story that runs and runs and runs. Uh, There is a temptation on the part of political political spinners and politicians to grab any thing that fits vaguely in that box, chuck it in there and say another example of Tory sleaze, when actually um, this doesn't really have that much in common with the you know the PPE contracts the the 100 million quid going to uh you know confectionery manufacturers and 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 rat poison manufacturers and and, and whatever so it's Although uh, actually to be honest even all of those all still do come under potentially you know we threw the kitchen sink at a, a massive problem I also do wonder with these things sometimes um, and I remember speaking to people in government saying that, you know, if you've got a really boring announcement, don't put out a press release about it because no one will, will write it up. If you leak it to someone, uh, you know, it implies some sort of secrecy around it. Suddenly it takes on a, an extra edge and the leaked text messages or leaked emails always have more potency. And then sometimes you do read them and think, mm, uh, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, let's go back to the House of Commons, see what Keir Stubber does with question two. Mr Speaker... Let's be clear what these texts show. The Prime Minister was lobbied by a wealthy businessman and a close friend for a change in the tax rules. Yes. Tax rules. The Prime Minister responded, I'll fix it. Oh, yes. Then, after a discussion with the Chancellor, who everybody seems to be lobbying these days, the Prime Minister texted his friend to say, it's fixed. How many other people with the Prime Minister's personal number has he given preferential treatment to? Minister. Mr Speaker, I, I, I recall the right honourable gentleman uh, at the time uh, saying that we should do everything uh, that we could to uh, get more ventilators and, and indeed uh, he, he congratulated the, the rollout of the ventilator. He, he said that well done to everybody involved uh, for the ventilator challenge. And I just remind the House what we were facing in March last year. Mr. Speaker, which was that we had a new virus which was capable uh, of killing people in ways that we didn't understand. The only way to help them uh, in extremis was to intubate them and put them on ventilation. We had 9,000 ventilators in this country, Mr. Speaker. Uh, we secured 22,000 as a result of that ventilator challenge. I think it was entirely the right thing to do to work with all potential, all potential makers of ventilators at, at that time, Mr. Speaker. And by the way, uh, so does the former leader of the Labour Party, a man to whom I think he should listen, uh, Tony Blair. It's one of Boris Johnson's favourite uh, things to raise, uh, the, the spectre of Tony Blair, just because he knows it causes his uh, Keir Stubb all sorts of unease. I seem to remember the Times once analysed all of Boris Johnson's columns at The Telegraph, uh, and we found that the, the politician he mentioned most was Tony Blair, uh, over any Conservative uh, uh, counterpart. Um, uh, Patrick, where do you think this is going? Are we going to have this, the, the same... Essentially the same attack from Keir Starmer with the same response from Boris Johnson. I can hear Keir Starmer's rousing peroration already because the argument he's starting to tease out here is very much in line with um, the overarching theme of a lot of Labour's interventions, which is these are the same old Tories. Despite the crushing mandate they won in our old heartlands, uh, you can't trust them. And you see the most significant word that Keir Starmer said in that question was friend. Uh, The second most... Uh, significant one was fix this idea that the Tories are, uh, you know, fixing uh, money for their mates in gentlemen's clubs and over text rather than representing the, uh, you know, traditional working class Brexit voters in the North and Midlands um, 
that they uh, that they now uh, ventriloquise so frequently. So I think uh, that's what that's where this is heading. I think we're uh, jumping off the springboard, Mark Dyson, into a uh, a you know more um, less rather less uh, specific, but also sort of less convincing. It's not really hit the hit the Tories so far. Well, let's go back and see if he has uh, more luck with question three. Mr Speaker, I'm surprised the Prime Minister brings up former leaders since it's his former leader, his friend, I think, Dave, who's at the heart of uh, much of this. And I acknowledge thousands of businesses stepped up during the pandemic. That was a good thing, and we celebrate that. The difference is they didn't all have the chance to text the Prime Minister asking him to fix the tax situation in exchange for doing that. That's the difference. At the heart of this scandal are people's jobs and wasted taxpayers' money. Take, for example, take, for example, the thousands of jobs at Liberty Steel that are on the line in Hartlepool, in Rotherham and elsewhere, following the collapse of Greensill Capital. The Prime Minister hasn't fixed that. In fact, he's done nothing to help steelworkers. Is it now, quite literally, one rule for those that have got the Prime Minister's phone number, another for everybody else? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, he calls it a scandal. He voted uh, for the changes uh, that we brought in. Uh, our ventilator, he called our ventilator challenge an outstanding success, and I think he was completely right. Uh, this is a government that gets on and uh, delivers for people uh, in distress and, and delivers for the, on the people's priorities. And yes, uh, yes, of course, uh, I am concerned for the families of steel workers uh, up, and down the, up and down the country. That's why the business secretary has been meeting with uh, the unions and with the management of Liberty Steel repeatedly over the last few days. But we believe in British Steel, uh, Mr Speaker. It was under, under the Labour, uh, last Labour government that jobs in steel fell by more than 50% and output fell by more than 50%. We've now got a 5 million tonne pipeline of British steel uh, with our massive infrastructure investments and we intend to use our new freedoms under Brexit to make sure that procurement goes to British companies, Mr Speaker. Believe in British steel, well, do something. I have to say to the Prime Minister, steel workers waking up this morning will find it deeply offensive to hear the Prime Minister boasting to his friends that he's the first Lord of the Treasury and we can give you the backing we need. He won't give the steel workers the backing that they need. Mr Speaker, this shows once again that favours, privileged access, tax breaks for mates, they're the, now, they're the main currency of this Conservative government. And if that's not the case, Prime Minister, can the Prime Minister tell me if one of the three million Hello. self-employed people who've been excluded from government support for over a year and now face bankruptcy, if they text the Prime Minister to ask for a tax break so they can survive, would he change the rules for them too? Yeah. Uh, Mr Speaker, we've given uh, this government, I should say, has uh, supported the self-employed with more than £14 billion uh, throughout the pandemic. And, uh, we, and that's a part of uh, a, a vast package uh, of support for, uh, for jobs and livelihoods across the country. We continue to do everything it takes. And I think that he should take back what he said about the ventilator challenge. Uh, he attacks the ventilator challenge now. Our efforts are 
our efforts to get more ventilators uh, at a very, very difficult time uh, for this country. In, in the same way, Mr. Speaker, by the way, in which he opportunistically attacked uh, the vaccine task force at a critical moment, uh, which, he will, which he will recall. Mr. Speaker, we take the tough decisions that are necessary to protect the people of this country and get things done. Ah, oh, repeat to fade. Uh, what's that now? Four, four questions I think we've had, uh, Patrick. Essentially the same question, then essentially the same response. Yeah, th- I mean, look, there we are. I can tell you next week's lottery numbers in a minute because I could, you know, it was obvious where <laughs> Keir Tom was going to go there. Intriguing mention of Hartlepool, of course, which is uh, in, in two uh, weeks and a day heading there for a by-election that will define the Keir Starmer's leadership, well, leadership so far. And... He's put the government in a tricky position there because it links... That there is a golden thread linking the cronyism story because uh, Sanjeev Gupta, whose company owns that those steelworks in Hartlepool, uh, was bankrupted by Lex Greensill and is engaged with a, uh, a, a, a dance with the government over whether to bail him out or let him go bankrupt or whatever. Um, but I do, I do think that uh, we are seeing now the bones of Labour's... Uh, argument going forward this is the argument they want to hurt the conservatives with which is you are not doing enough to repay the voters who put their faith in you for the first time ever in a lot of cases because you are exactly what they suspected you were which is out for people who aren't like them now whether that's entirely convincing or strikes a chord with those voters um we'll see in hartlepool it's also as a lot of attack against boris johnson you know out of touch uh, Tory toff, oldie toe, you know, th- people have tried that card against him again and again and again. And for whatever reason, and people say it's not fair and it's not true and whatever else, but for whatever reason, um, it, it has a sort of Teflon quality that means that people are like, yeah, no, I know all that, but I still quite like him. Yeah. Or I'm still willing to vote for him. Or I still quite like what he's promising on, on that front. And, and in a way, if someone has been so unashamedly owning their, their past, if you like, it's quite difficult to, to sort of use it as a stick to beat them with. Yeah, exactly. And look at what Keir Starmer said in his opening remarks, which was, as an Arsenal season ticket holder, now clearly trying to situate himself as a genuine football fan, which he is. Uh, he goes every other week when, when that's allowed. Um, compare that to what Boris Johnson spokesman said at number 10 yesterday, which is, oh, he doesn't support a football team. I couldn't tell you uh, when he last went. But who are teenagers making memes of on a football pitch this morning? It's not Keir Starmer because he likes football. It's Boris Johnson, the out-of-touch toff that likes football because, uh, frankly, one, he's the Prime Minister and that's his, you know he's obviously more likely to attract attention, but he, has, I think, has a more instinctive grasp and uh, ability to communicate to these voters than Labour would like to admit. I suppose, actually, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a, a more cynical, calculating uh, um, politician might have thought, well, I can't be the one who fronts up this football thing because I don't know anything about football. But, um, you know, well, we'll have to fight. Who, who around the cabinet table is big into football? They can, they can be the face of this. And Boris Johnson's view is, it doesn't matter if I don't like football. There's some political capital here. There's a position that needs to be taken. I think this is the right thing to do. And I'm just going to do it. And sniping from some journalists on Twitter saying that he's never been to a football match, or it might be, makes no difference at all. Ultimately, he's the one who, that's emerged... Uh, from it um, on on the right side of fans. Uh, let's go back and see if uh, Keir Starmer uh, has any more success with, uh, I think, question five. Mr Speaker, if I had to correct the Prime Minister for everything he gets wrong, I'd be here all day. I take it, I take it that's a no as an answer to the question in relation to the three million. And there we have it. An open door, but for those with the Prime Minister's number, 
a closed door to the three million. What this shows once again is the extent of the sleaze and cronyism that's at the heart of his Conservative government. Let me try another way, Prime Minister. Let me try another way. If an NHS nurse, if an NHS nurse, Prime Minister, who's been working on the front line during the pandemic, had the Prime Minister's phone number, would they get the pay rise they so obviously deserve? <laughs> I mean, it's quite a smart question, that, although, uh, as Keir Starmer knows, it is basically a total nonsense. But there is also this sort of slight... There's a slight air of, what are we going to do for question five? What, what, ugh, nurses. Let's do nurses. Well, you can tell question six will involve, uh, and that's why people should put their faith in Labour who will hike nurses' pay, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the problem for Keir Starmer here um, is that what happens if the... The problem is the government has the ability to answer these, answer all of these questions. It's a long parliament. And it might be that over the, ne- over the course of the next three years, the contradictions in the Tories' platform... Um, begin to exert intolerable strains on Boris Johnson's relationship with his own MPs because, you know, they're not all into hiking public sector pay, bailing out failing industries, etc., etc. But for now, Boris Johnson has it within his power to say, uh, yes, absolutely, I'll save Liberty Steel. Um, here's a 3% increase for nurses' pay. Um, and there you go. He, the, the Keir Starmer has... Uh, 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 has uh, demanded a U-turn, got his U-turn, and it's Boris Johnson that gets the credit. So um, we're not going to... These aren't questions to which Keir Starmer can get an answer now, which is partly why his job at the moment is so tricky. Yeah, I mean, they tried this a few weeks ago, didn't they, with the, the, uh, the um, uh, Dominic Cummings pay rise. He got a was it £40,000 pay rise, but they won't give nurses a pay rise. And one of the, I mean, in purely mathematical terms, it's slightly more expensive to give nurses a pay rise. Uh, but I suppose it does say something about political priorities. Let's go back uh, for, as Patrick predicts, the peroration of uh, of Keir Starmer as he lays out uh, all of his political arguments in one possibly snappy soundbite for the news tonight. Let's take a listen. I'm, a speaker. I'm proud of what this government has done to support yeah. the NHS throughout the pandemic uh, with record investments and uh, with another £92 billion that we've put in uh, to support the NHS throughout the pandemic. And what we're doing to help nurses, as he knows, is last year putting in the bursary of £5,000 plus the £3,000 on top to help them with training and the costs of childcare. A, 12 point, a 12.8% increase on starting salary uh, just Uh, in the last uh, couple of years, Mr Speaker. And uh, above all, this is the government that is helping nurses and helping the profession by recruiting more than ever before. And uh, there are are already 50,000 more people in the NHS this year than there were last year, Mr Speaker, and 10,600 more nurses. That's what I'd say uh, to many of the nurses that I've talked to in the last uh, few days and weeks, and we will continue to back them to the hilt. Yes, Starmer. Right, now let's hear, hear from Keir Starmer. Talking to the NHS frontline, he'd know just how insulted they are by his pay cut after everything they've put in in the last year. They didn't get a text from the Prime Minister. They got a kick in the teeth. Yeah. Mr Speaker, there's a pattern to this government. The Prime Minister is fixing tax breaks for his friends. The Chancellor is pushing the Treasury to help Lex Greensill. The Health Secretary is meeting Greensill for drinks. And David Cameron's texting anybody who'll reply. <laughs> every day, every day, there are new allegations about this Conservative government. Dodgy PPE deals, tax breaks for their mates. The Health Secretary owns shares in a company delivering NHS services. Sleaze, sleaze, sleaze. 
and it's all on his watch. With this scandal now firmly centred on him, how on earth does he expect people to believe that he is the person to clean this mess up? I'll tell you why. Because this, I'll tell you why uh, this government is, is doing the right thing at the right time. Because the difference between uh, us and the Labour Party is, is I'm afraid, uh, staringly obvious. And we get on uh, with taking the tough decisions uh, to protect the people of this country and to take our country forward. Uniting eleven, we, we take the tough decisions to procure thousands, tens of thousands of ventilators in record time, which apparently he now opposes. Uh, we, we, put, we put forward tougher sentences uh, for rapists uh, and violent criminals, Mr Speaker, which he then opposes on a three-line whip, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, and we stick up, we take tough decisions to stick up for the fans, to stick up for the fans of our national game. Captain Hindsight snipes continually from the sidelines. This government gets on with delivering on the people's priorities, Mr Speaker. Philip Davis. Uh, well, let's uh, come away from the backbench exchanges. We'll do the best of the backbenchers uh, after the 12-13 uh, thir- news. Um, uh, sleaze, 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 says Keir Starmer. Echoes, perhaps, of, uh, of Tony Blair's weak, weak, weak against uh, John Major. Patrick McGuire. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth because it was clearly um, a conscious attempt to uh, imitate that or either uh, some of Keir Starmer's aides are more oblivious to Labour history than, than some of us realised. Um, but <laughs> the problem is, the problem is, and, and clearly people see parallels between sleaze as it is now and sleaze, um, the sleaze of the major government. And I think there is, a, there is a problem with that parallel because the sleaze narrative that engulfed the, uh, the major government was all about reinforcing the idea that he was staggering to defeat Black Wednesday had happened. Uh, the Tories had sort of lost their moral authority to govern. And it was a sort of self-reinforcing cycle. These stories were symptomatic of a government that was falling apart at the seams. Um, you know, if they weren't bickering over Europe, they were um, sleeping with their secretaries uh, or, you know, taking cash for questions. Whereas now, sleaze, sleaze, sleaze requires quite a lot of explanation um, and obviously it's incumbent upon everybody who works in and around politics to explain these issues clearly. But for the public, I think it is basically, it, does, it doesn't correspond with what they're seeing on telly, which is uh, Boris Johnson um, delivering vaccines or standing up for football fans um, and, the, the you know, unlocking. It's not really consistent with um, the narrative the, the sort of meta, the uh, the overarching narrative that, about the government's performance. So that, I think that, that that's the issue with trying to say, well, that worked for Tony Blair. That's what sleaze is. What did for Major? Um, actually, a lot of other things did for Major, and sleaze was you know the the, the, the ribbon that was tied around it. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, ten till one. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. The 
secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. History. 